Each year we do celebrate Advent together. Uh, we've been doing it for around 10 years now as a, as a church. Um, and Advent is actually a pretty simple thing to understand. It's a time when we wait, which we'll talk about. Can you imagine, I think it's hard for us to think about, but can you imagine being uh, Israel and waiting for the Messiah? You've heard about this Messiah. You, you know the prophecies about the Messiah, but yet it seems as if the Messiah is never going to come. Right? When is, when is salvation going to come? When is the hope of Israel going to come? When is, when is the head of the serpent going to be crushed? When is that going to happen? When is that going to take place? can wonder what the conversations might have been like each Passover, uh, just, just wondering. See, for us, that's a hard thing to think about because we know that Christ has come. We, we have the privilege of, of looking back, of having the word of God and saying, Jesus has come. He is our hope. He is our joy, our peace, our, our love, our understanding of love. We, we have the privilege to do that. And so part of Advent is, is looking back to that. Being thankful for that. But in a sense, we do understand what it's like to wait because we also, as Christians, as children of God, we, we wait for Christ to come again. Not to come the same way he came last time, but this time to come full of power, with authority, as a, as a judge, and for us to be able to go with him uh, to where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more no more sorrow, no more, no more shame, none of that. Uh, none, of the, none of the bad news that we hear. That'll all be, be done, and we'll get to spend eternity with him. And so while we look back, we also do wait looking forward. And so we celebrate this time together. I was reading a small devotion from Chad Bird. He's going to be at our men's conference coming up uh, in the spring. And he, he talked about how the, the world around us is very fast right now. Uh, in this time of season, it's even faster, isn't it? Uh, the hustle and bustle of trying to figure everything out. Uh, I'm sure you've been on the phone with relatives figuring out dates and plans and what's going to be done. And things can get hectic. But as the church, this is a time for us to stop. It's a time for us to pause. It's a time for us to wait, to reflect again on what Christ has done, his coming but also to remember that we are waiting on him to return. And it's also a time for us to remember that Christ has provided for us everything that we need. Uh, we don't have to be busy trying to please him. We don't have to be busy uh, trying to earn anything from him. He has given that to us in Jesus. And so while I'm sure your Christmas season will be busy, I hope that on Sundays at least you will be able to rest as we are called to do, to rest and to remember that Christ has come. For these next four weeks leading up to Christmas, with Christmas Eve being on a, a Sunday, we look forward to that. We are going to hopefully be reminded of hope, of love, of joy, of peace each week. And what we're going to do is we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And so I want you to go to the Gospel of John, the very first chapter. This is where we're going to spend our time together the next four weeks, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, this is the prologue of this gospel, and it really is a treasure. It's a special 18 verses that we have. There's so much contained in these 18 verses. And it's interesting because John doesn't start with a manger. 
John doesn't start necessarily with a baby. Uh, we have that in other accounts. Oftentimes people will go to Matthew or they'll go to Luke, which we'll be doing uh, as well through the Christmas season. But John has a different strategy. He actually goes all the way back to the beginning. And so each week what we're going to do is we're going to take a small section of this, of this passage and try, to, try our best to look at the great truths that uh, lie within it. I really hope that as we go through these 18 verses, that many of you will say, I know these. I know these. I've, I've memorized these before. In the beginning was the word. I, I know this. And so I hope that it's just a reminder to you. Uh, but there might be some uh, this morning that some of these truths will be new. Because these are foundational truths for us, as we will see. And so let us you know, pray together, hopefully, during Christmas, that... God will open our eyes to this truth, that we will know them, that we will understand them, that we will hold on to them, because the fact is many are pushing against these truths uh, outside of the church, but also, sadly, within the church as well. Uh, but let us pray that God will reveal himself to us very mightily over these next four weeks, over this month, because the truths that we're going to look at is this. They are the truths that are the foundation of our faith. Without these truths, we do not have Christianity. And we'll see that more in depth this morning, looking at the first five verses. As church family, there's a lot of things that we can argue about. And that's okay. We can debate certain things in Scripture. But the, but the truths that we're going to see in these first 18 verses are not truths that we can argue about. It's not truths that we can debate. It's either you believe these truths or you don't. If you believe these truths, you are Christian. If you do not believe these truths... You are not Christian. Many people will claim to be Christian and push against these truths. And the fact is, they are not Christian. They are not of the church of, of God. And so that's why these are so important. And sometimes it can be a little weighty. But I trust that you're smart people. And you will be able to grasp them very easily. And I'm sure many of them you already have grasped. So follow along with me. Uh, <clears throat> let's read all 18 verses since that's where we'll be all month. But our focus is going to be in the first five. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As I said, there is a lot in these 
first 18 verses, but we just want to focus on verses 1 through 5 this morning because there are some great truths that we see in it. First, in verses 1 through 2, John states emphatically here that the Word has always been and has always been with God and, in fact, is God. Now, I wanted to read it all this morning because in verse 14 we see what the Word is. The Word is Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. And that's where we'll be on Christmas Eve morning in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we need to understand that as we read this, when it's talking about the word, it's talking about Jesus himself, Jesus Christ. It is saying that Jesus is eternal, that he has always been. That's what John is trying to get across very first, the very first thing in his gospel account, that Jesus is eternal. He is eternal. He is not a created being. He has always been. God always has been. Now, this is something that continues to be argued about even to this day. There are many people who respect Christ. They respect Jesus. Uh, They might even say that after after he was born, uh, some sort of deity was placed on him. But he was definitely born naturally, was a created being who ended up rising up the ranks, so to speak. Well, this is heresy. This is something that is not true. John is stating emphatically here, no, Christ has always been. Jesus is not a created being. That's not what we, what we have with the Trinity. And so this becomes very important as we're going to look at our, our couple other points uh, here in this passage. Because Jesus has to be eternal in order to be God, which will be the next thing that we will see, right? But before that can be established, John wants us to know that Christ always has been. There's never been a time when Jesus was not. Again, I I hope this is just review for many of us. But these are foundational truths that have to be true. And this is why John starts here and not with the manger. He goes all the way back. Really, Really, it's kind of reminiscent, isn't it, of Genesis, in the beginning, that's what we have in Genesis 1. And then John starts with, in the beginning was the word. You see, to, to John, heresy was a big deal. We, have a, we actually have a, a story. It's passed down uh, to us from a second century uh, follower of Christ who, who served under someone who served under John. And it said that at one point... John goes into a, a bathhouse, and in the bathhouse is a known heretic, Serinthius. And what Serinthius taught, he was kind of Gnostic, and he taught that Jesus was born of, of natural ways, that it was, he was the son of Joseph and of, of Mary, that there was no virgin birth. And John walks into the bathhouse, and he sees this guy in there, and he runs out into the street. He runs out screaming, This ceiling might fall down because there's a heretic in here. I don't want to be in the building if it falls on top of him. You see, to us, that sounds kind of silly. But one of the things that it does show is that John took this very seriously. Like, hey, you can't be messing around with the fact that Jesus always has been. That that he is eternal. It's a big deal if you're going to start saying that's not the case. And it was already happening with John. And so this is probably why he begins his letter this way, is to argue against these people who are already rising up and teaching something different than what was true. It was important to him. 
John knew that this had to be stopped. And so at the very beginning, he says, the word always was. But then he states very clearly that the word was God. This, again, is a hotly debated thing. But John wants us to know that Jesus is God. As a church, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this can be a confusing topic to talk about. And so what I've chosen to do is to read from the London Baptist Confession. This was written a long time ago in 1689. Our Baptist forefathers had wrote this. And so I want you to listen to what it says. It says, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity. Each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning. Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? Now, as I read that, again, I know that this seems jumbled and it seems hard to understand, but I'm thankful for men who fought these battles for centuries. And I'm thankful that God allows me to continue to fight that battle, I suppose, against those who would deny it today. Now, for many of us who've been raised in a church like this, the Trinity is something we've always heard of. We, not, we might not be able to say what the London Baptist Confession says. We might have a little struggle with that of defining it. But we would agree with them and we would say what they say at the end, wouldn't we? We would say this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God, everything. It all rests on this truth. But you do need to know there are churches in our community who deny this. They, they deny this. I'm sure you have friends who go to these churches, maybe family, who go to these churches. And I just want you to be aware of this, that they deny this. And by denying this, they are not Christian. And our heart should break for them. Uh, we should have a good grasp on what we believe and what the Bible teaches here with the Trinity so we can uh, let them know. But they would deny this. And it's sad because what they are denying is that they are denying oftentimes the fact that Jesus is God, fully God. John would say that because Jesus is God, there's a lot of things, and Scripture would speak to this. One, one I will talk about more in a moment, but that is that all things are created through him. John says that in the first five verses here. But there's other reasons that Jesus is God and why Jesus has to be God in order for us to have salvation, in order for him to be able to be the Savior. Another thing is this. Only God could bear the weight of God's wrath. A man cannot do that. Yet, that is what Jesus had to do on the cross. That is what Jesus had to do to be our substitute. He, he had to be able to bear the full wrath of God on him and survive it. And Jesus did that. And only God can do that. And so that is another reason why John is stating this. God alone can do that. I, I, I read somewhere saying because Jesus is God, he is the only one able to satisfy and secure redemption. See, that's not something you and I can do. We are sinful. Jesus was not sinful. 
Jesus not being born of man, but uh, having the virgin birth, able to not sin. And he lives this perfect life, still tempted, still tried, but does this perfectly. Again, this is something only God himself can do. And so if we are going to go around saying Jesus isn't God, then these are things that we must deny. We must deny then that he wasn't able to satisfy the wrath of God, that he wasn't able to live a perfect life. But we do believe that with Jesus being God. Now, the other thing that Jesus being God is so important in our, in our beliefs and what we believe Scripture teaches is that only God can be our mediator between God and man. Now, Jesus has two roles, which I'm sure we'll look more in this series, but Jesus is fully God, but the Bible also teaches that Jesus is fully man. And now because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, he is able to be the perfect mediator between God and man. Because when Jesus goes to the table of mediation, so to speak, he can represent God. Why? Because he is God. But he can also represent man. He can represent me. Why? Because he was also fully man. He walked this earth. You see, it has to be both in order for there to be salvation, in order for there to be redemption. And we have this in Jesus Christ. He is perfectly wise. He is perfectly gracious. He's perfectly loving. He's he's perfectly kind. He, He has on him all the attributes of God. They are his as the Son of God, and thus he can mediate for God. But yet the Bible tells me that he knows what it's like to suffer. The Bible tells me that he knows what pain is. The Bible tells me that he understands sin because he walked and lived amongst it. And so he can 100% sympathize with me, understand me, understand you. And so then he can mediate on our behalf when it comes to our relationship with God the Father. Now again, I know that this can all seem very jumbled and in fact... When you start getting language involved, it becomes even worse. I know that this is something Pastor Dave loved. Dave, he loves language, and I think he's crazy for it. It is a world of, like, just chaos uh, to me when I understand this. Pastor Scott, I think, is in Greek right now. Did you pass your test? You had a test this week. Oh, he don't know yet. So we won't reference him yet when it comes to languages. But the language that we have in John chapter 1 is, is really very important And John, it says, is very masterful in how he uses languages. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg in this, and I wanted to quote him because uh, it's very helpful. So try try to follow along with me if you can. He says, John's use of tenses here in this is masterful. He uses the imperfect tense as he's describing the preexistence and location of the Son. He was with God. That's the imperfect tense. But when he says he became man, or he has appeared, he uses the aorist, or the punctiliar tense, making the point very, very clear that although it says that he became, in a moment, flesh, it never says he became God. His became flesh is aorist. It is an instantaneous intervention, decisively in a moment, in time. All of the expressions of his preexistent state are in the ongoing Imperfect tense. He was, he was, he was. He was with God. He was with God. He was with God. And what he always was, he became in a moment in time. And so the reason I read that is because in this section, it never, it never says in those first five verses anywhere, and he became God. No, it's he always, always God. 
It, it never states that. Now, there are some who try to argue against that. They try to argue to say at some point Jesus became God. When he, when he proved himself, then God bestowed upon him sonship, and now he was God. No, the Bible never teaches that. It never states that. He always was God and always is God. You see, if he isn't God, he cannot be our Savior, he cannot be our Lord, and he cannot be our King. He's not all-knowing then. He's not all-powerful. And we have to have that in our Savior and King. He must be. And John is stating here, he is. Jesus is God. I've told you this story before. I went to lunch with Jonathan Stone a while back, and a friend of his said, if you could just prove to me that Jesus is God, I'll fall on my face right now. It was a Muslim guy. And no matter the verses we showed him, it didn't really matter. His eyes were close to the truth. And that really wasn't what was hanging him up because it's very clear in Scripture, Jesus is God. He never denies this. And this fulfills for us Isaiah seven fourteen, the prophecy that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's why he was given the name, because he is God. You see, again, when a person denies any of this, what we have is not Christianity at all. I know this stuff can seem very academic. At times, it can even seem unnecessary. But it is the core of our faith. It is the essential truths that we need to make sure we understand and that we hold on to, because too often people try to deny these truths and what they're left with is not Christianity. They're left with no hope or anything. Instead, what they're left with really is a wish. That's what they're left with, is a wish, if they're not going to hold to these. And as I said, a lot of our loved ones, a lot of our family who we're going to be with, this is what they would stand to believe. And, and their beliefs are nothing more than a child blowing out a birthday candle and saying, I wish for this. It's the same thing. Oh, they might sit in a pew and listen to somebody. But if they're not going to believe that Jesus is eternal and that Jesus is God, they might as well just wait for a shooting star. They're wasting their time sitting in a pew. They might as well go camping or go hiking or do something a little more fun than just sitting here. Because all they're doing is making some wish that we know means nothing. You say, well, Pastor Tim, how can you be so... Sure about that. How can you be so strong about what's being said here? Well, listen to 1 John. John would write this in, his, in the epistles there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You catch that? No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's about as clear as it can possibly be. Be made. And we know that Jesus said it himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What does he say? No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. And that means all of him. Not me as a prophet. Not me. No, it's me. I am fully God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he would say. This is what we hold on to. In verse 3, John says that all things have been created through Jesus this is not the only place in Scripture where this is seen. It's also seen in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, 
in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 uh, and 17. In Hebrews it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John is stating for us here that it is because of Jesus that we have all things. <laughs> it is because of Jesus that we have creation. It's because of Jesus that we have a mountain or that we have the sea or that we have the lakes or that we have anything. All things have been created through him. And then in Colossians it also says, and all things are sustained by him. If it were not for Christ, it would all fall apart. There's some of you who like order. I'm kind of that way. I, I, I always liked math. That was always a thing to me. Some of you hate math, but I liked math because it made sense to me. Why? Because there was order. There, there was order to it, and there were patterns that made sense. And, and when we look at science and when we, when we look at these different things, we, we start to realize that creation was made with order. But it's not sustained just because of order. It's sustained because Christ allows it to be sustained. Jesus allows the, the earth to spin. Jesus allows rain to happen. Jesus, Jesus allows the wind. He allows all these things. It wouldn't happen if he was not the one sustaining it. And again, this, this truth does it not point to the fact that he's eternal. He always has been. Because if he's not, then this doesn't happen. It also points to his divinity and his power as he reigns supreme over all creation. He is the king over everything. Now, as a created being, us, that being us, knowing that all things were created through Jesus and by Jesus, he's the one who upholds it. That's just another reason, isn't it, that we should gather here to worship him, that we should honor him, that we should address him as such, as king of kings and lord of lords. And the Bible tells us that one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you and I both know that this doesn't happen now, does it? At the name of Jesus, I don't know how many people confess. At the name of Jesus, how many would bow and worship him? Probably, in fact, it'd be the opposite is true. If you speak the name of Jesus, you might be ridiculed or laughed at. And that's okay. We've been promised that that would happen. We know that that's going to happen. But the, the truth is that one day, all of creation will bow down to him. And we will be a part of that. We will be a part of that. And for us, it won't be the first time we've bowed to him, hopefully. It'll be something that we're used to. But in that moment, all of creation will recognize the one who created everything, the one who has sustained everything. And that's one of those things that we wait for. That's one of those things that we long for in the second advent of Jesus. Well, then lastly, verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, there is a little bit of a change that takes place. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
John likes to use the word light. He'll use it a lot more in his gospel. But there are two main trains of thoughts when it comes to this section. One is that verse 4 is mainly connected to verses 1 and 3 and is talking about light and creation. If this is true, then what John is pointing out is that we have been created in the image of God and this is the light that is being talked about there. That it cannot be darkened, that it cannot be pushed aside. The fact is we've been created in his image, all creation, all man, right? In the image of God and that's what's being discussed here. The other option is to look at this spiritually and to see that Jesus is the light in the darkness. Again, talking about sin, talking about the corruption that's come up because of sin, and that darkness will not overcome Christ. It cannot overcome Jesus because he is the true light. Now, if this is true, it would definitely make us think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We've already been thinking about Genesis chapter 1 within the beginning, but now John again brings us to chapter 3 when we think about the curse, right? When it points out that there's one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent once and for all. Darkness completed, completely gone, correct? Now, either way, I would tend to go with the second way probably, but either way, the main point here is focused in on Jesus. It's focused in on his, on his work, not only in creation, but also for creation, for man. Because when we look at verse 5, it's a verse that gives us hope, is it not? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, verse 5, I think, when we read it, really should be a verse that gives us hope, that gives us what we talked about with the Advent season, joy, that gives us peace. This idea that there is a light that cannot be covered by the darkness. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaking, and it says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's really few things scarier in this world than dark. I think all of us try to act like we're not afraid of the dark, but we are all afraid of the dark. If you're a hunter in here, which I like to do, you know as well as I know, walking to that stand in the dark in the woods can be a scary thing. A nice pretty little bunny rabbit can make you almost mess your pants. It's, it's, it, is, it is scary. You know there's really nothing. You know, you're like, I don't really need to be that scared. But there's just something about the dark that really, it really frightens you. Now, we can think about it in a different way, too. Thinking about the future for us, which we can't see into the future. We don't know the future. But for many of us, that's a darkness, and it's very scary for many of us. We don't know what the future holds. And when we really start to ponder it at times, we can really be overcome with some fear of what might happen and what might take place. I hear this a lot of time from grandparents. I'm really scared of what lies ahead for my grandchildren. I'm really scared about what the world is coming to for my great-grandchildren. Right? There's, a, there's a fear of the dark. There's a, there's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear, for many of us, of, of evil. Will it overtake me? Will it overtake my family? I think this is a rational fear. I, I think this is a, a very normal thing for us to have. I'm not even here today to tell us you shouldn't have these these fears at all. No, that's not, that's not what I'm here to tell you. 
But what I think John is here to tell us in verse 5 is that as children of God, as those who've been saved by God, who've trusted in Jesus, we, we hold to these truths that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is God, that Jesus came to, to save me so that I could be forgiven of my sin. When we, when we hold to these truths, then verse 5 is our truth. The light shines in the darkness, and listen, the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot overcome it. It will not overcome it. This is really a definition of our life as believers. Evil cannot overcome you because Christ has overcome evil for you. <laughs> it's not you that has overcome it. He has overcome it for you. Thus, that's why we can say things like, church family, you are the light of the world. <laughs> We're a city set on a, on a hill. It's why so often when I pray at the end of a service, so often when I pray, I pray that God would help us to be light in a dark world. Because when it's really dark out, it really doesn't take much light to notice the light, does it? And oftentimes when I talk to Christians, they start talking and telling me it's very dark outside. Well, then the response for us as the church would be, well, let's go light it up. Let's go light it up. I mean, Jesus is the light of the world and darkness cannot overcome it. Oh, they might hate you. They might, they might shun you. They might not invite you to the Christmas party because you make it awkward. Right? They, a lot of things could happen. But yet we have the privilege of letting our loved ones know, of letting our lost friends know, there's hope in this world. There's peace in this world, but you've got to understand it only comes from one place. There's only one source of light in this darkness, and it is in the name of Jesus. Fully God and fully man. And he came and died for you. See, we have the privilege to be able to extend that invitation, to say, there is hope. I have no doubt when you go to work, people complain the whole time, because that's what everybody does. When you go to work, everybody's complaining nonstop all the time about something. Did you know you have you have the ability to interject the greatest hope they could ever hear. And that's Jesus has died for them. And the darkness can never, it can never overcome it. What a great privilege we have as God's children knowing this truth of verse 5. It allows us to be able to walk upright, doesn't it? It should allow us to be able to keep our head high. It, it allows us to take more and more beatings, more and more hits. Why? Because you can beat me all you want. You're not going to overcome me. Because Christ has saved me. Oh, you might break this body down and you might, in fact, kill me. But you're not going to take anything away from me. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, towards the end, death is my victory. So if you want to take my life, thank you. I've crossed the finish line. I've crossed the finish line. And now, because of Jesus, I'll be able to hear, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here, I've prepared a place for you. Come, be with me, dine with me. You see, as Christians, even death itself has been swallowed up in victory. <clears throat> I don't know what this message is for you this morning. I know that when I prepare a message, I can tell a lot of times as I'm writing it down on paper, I'm like, 
people are going to like this one. And I can tell at times, this one's going to be harder for people. That was this one. I know it was very academic. I know we talked about language. We talked about a lot of different things. But I hope that you will grasp these truths. That you will hold to them. That you will understand them of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. The one that we celebrate for the next month. I was talking to somebody this morning. Christmas to me is always just an amazing time. They were at the University of Michigan listening to the Messiah. Who's that by, Spencer? The Messiah thing. There you go, Handel, Handel. I'm not too into that kind of stuff, as you'll see. You have at the University of Michigan people singing scripture. None of which probably believe it. None of which probably think it's even truth. But they're in a, in a place where I don't know if it could be more secular. The word of God being sang very beautifully. And people paying money to go listen to it. What a time we have as Christians to be able to ask people, do you know what this means? <laughs> Do you know what lies in these words that are being sung is your hope and your truth and God reaching out to you to let you know that you have a Savior who loves you so much and died for you. Solves it all for you, I promise. What a time we have as Christians to be able to do that during this Christmas season. I hope God will give you opportunities to be able to share the truth and I hope that you'll take those opportunities and not look at them as opportunities to you know, just please God, or if you fail in that moment to think, oh, now I've just failed. No, to look at his opportunities of, oh my gosh, I get to share light today. God, use it. God, God, use it. I don't know, maybe this morning you're sitting here wrestling, and you've been wrestling with this for a long time. Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus, I hope that as we looked at the first five verses in John, maybe that answered your question this morning. It's very clear. The word was God, is God. It says it very clearly here. And I don't know, maybe God has softened your heart this morning enough to where you will trust in him this morning by faith. We're praying that that does happen. Well, let's bow together. Let's pray. I want you to respond to the word of God this morning, however you see fit as we sing our last song here in a moment. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you for Jesus. As we ask the question, and many people are asking the question, who is Jesus? God, there's many answers out there. There's many right answers. God, also there's many wrong answers. There's people who say he's a prophet, he was a rabbi, that he's a good teacher. There's people who just say he was a good man. There's people who say he even grew into some sort of divinity. Again, there's all kinds of thoughts out there. God, I pray that we would understand that Jesus is there from the beginning. Jesus is God, and because he is God, only he could do what was necessary for us to be redeemed, for us to be forgiven and and saved 
God, I, I pray that we would grasp that. Help us to understand that more and more as we walk with you. But God, I pray that more people would recognize that. God, we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But God, I pray that more would do it even before you return. That more would trust in you. God, I have no doubt in this room there are many who are praying even now that you would save their children. That you would save their grandkids. That you would save their nieces and nephews, their co-workers, their neighbors. God, we know that's a work that you have to do in their life. And God, if you would see fit for us to be able to share the gospel with them, if you would see fit for us to have an opportunity, maybe just for a little bit, to share with them the love that you have for them through your son, Jesus. God, help us to be faithful to that. And I, I pray that you would use that, God, so that we can see those that we love come to know you as their savior. To no longer just believe in wishes and chance, but to really understand what it means to have hope and peace, joy, and to understand love that is found only in Jesus. God, for those here this morning who have trusted in Jesus, we, of course, thank you for them. We thank you for that salvation. But God, help us to continue to be molded and made into the image of him day in and day out. Help us to be light in a dark world. God, we do love you. As we sing this last song, I pray that we would honor you with it, that we would worship you, and that we'd be able to respond to your word as we should this morning. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.